So we're back in 1 Samuel. If you want to, uh, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 31. We'll be talking about verses 1 through 13. And this will be the 40th sermon on 1 Samuel. And the last one, we'll be moving on to 2 Samuel, of course, next week. But before we open the Word of God, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the ministry of the latter prophets and for Samuel compiling this work for us, Lord, to consider, to to read, to dive deeply into and learn more about you and your covenant with us, your kindness and your mercy to us, your judgment upon sinners, Lord. We pray that as we read uh, this text, that we study it, we would... Our hearts would be opened, our minds would be purified, that we would draw near to you. We pray, Lord, that you would comfort and convict each of us in exactly the measure we need today, and that we would rise up joyous and go forth from here and serve you uprightly. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen. Now, just for the sake of review, what's been going on is there's been a battle just waiting. Okay, you got two armies in the Valley of Jezreel waiting to go toe-to-toe. It's the Philistines and the Israelites. And what you have in the closing of 1 Samuel is this uh, comparison between David and Saul. David uh, had gone over to the Philistine side. He pretended to be of the Philistines. He was raiding on their behalf, and he was slaughtering whole tribes, whole cities, and leaving no witnesses because he was really slaughtering what were the Philistines themselves. But he was passing it off as if he was doing it to Israel. So he, his esteem grows amongst the Philistines, and when they finally go to war against Israel, they, they take him first with them, and then the other Philistines are mad about this and reject him. Say, there's no way we can take this, the slaughterer of, the, of our giant, Goliath, the one who uh, paid his ride price of 200 Philistine foreskins. There's no way that guy's riding in battle with us. So they reject him. So while Saul... <laughs> He's waiting for this, this battle to proceed. David goes and finds out people that had taken his, his tribe, and he goes and delivers them from the Amalekites and, and saves them and takes all this swag and starts distributing it in largesse to his friends and relations. Now, while he's doing that, Saul is trying to hear from the Lord God, and the Lord God is not picking up the phone. And so he does the only reasonable thing is he goes to the necromancer in Endor, and dials up Samuel from the dead. And Samuel's message is uh, one of woe. Samuel's message is, tomorrow you're all going to die. And that's where things were left off with Saul. As you can see, that's just fantastic news, top and bottom. So you have this whole comparison going on. What, where is Saul? What is he doing? Where is David? What is he doing? One is descending. One is ascending. One is following the Lord and listening to the Lord. Um, David had been, right, he dialed up God on the phone and God answered. So you have these two people who are in very different positions. So the events to which the last chapters of 1 Samuel have led are to the swift death of Saul. It happens so fast, if you blink, you'll miss it. The account is brief, it is factual, and thus all the more moving. It's a very poetical death that he, it's almost Shakespearean what happens to him here at the end. Now the section that we're looking at today, chapter 31, uh, picks up the narrative from 28:25, which I'll go back and read. This is where we last found Saul, 28, verse 25. And she, the necromancer, uh, put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. So that's it. That's his last meal. His last meal is a meal with a necromancer. He now goes out to battle. 
Now, as in chapter 28, the events are set in Jezreel, as I've said, where Saul and the Philistines are waiting for him. And only hours after his meal, this is just a few hours later, the verbs used throughout chapter 31 tell us a little bit about the story. It's a brutal disaster. Okay, to flee is used three times. The verb fall or fallen is used four times. Strike down is used, writhe, wounded, pierce, die, strip, cut off, nail. These are the verbs of chapter 31. And if you just, you don't even need to know the rest of the context. Just read through the list of verbs in this chapter and you realize that things do not go well. The tone is absolutely one of defeat and disaster. Now, fall, uh, Saul, sorry, Saul falls on Mount Geboa. Now, mountains in the Old Testament and New Testament are associated with places of worship. They're high. They're close to heaven. They're close to where the Lord sits enthroned upon his mountain, Zion. Now, in the ancient world and in the Bible, these are places where people go to worship. Now, normally temples are built there, high places. And as we read through the Old Testament, what are they always running up, right? What is the prophets always angry about? The high places of Israel. Why are you making these high places when you have a high place? You're making these false temples in every corner. You're making these places out in the woods. You're worshiping there, and you're all these false gods in high places. And the high places are supposed to represent the tops of mountains. Moses met with the Lord on top of a mountain. Eden was on top of a mountain. I could go on and on, right? Mount Zion is the, the mountain in heaven, the one in which we gather at this moment. Now, what's going on here is that Saul is punctured with arrows. His belly is ripped open. His head is cut off and he is burned. Now, all of this happens on Mount Geboa. Right? All of this happens because he is a sacrifice. They have got to give him up. He has got to pay. He has got to burn. He's got to bleed. Now, why? Because in the word of God, in Deuteronomy 21, in order for the land to be purified, murderers have to be put to death. And he is, in fact, a murderer. He's murdered lots of people. He's murdered whole towns of priests. He is a murderer. In order for Israel to recover from his bad leadership, the first thing you've got to do is offer him up as a sacrifice. And that is what they do. Before we move on to David and all the good and glorious things he does for a very short period of time, you get this moment where you have a Passover lamb that is offered up to the Lord to cleanse the land. The battle around Mount Geboa echoes the battle of Aphek from chapter 4. Now, what this does is it draws a parallel for, between the beginning and end of 1 Samuel. It suggests something about the structure of 1 and 2 Samuel. Now, um, book 1 and book 2 are parts of one single book. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are actually part 1, part 2 of the same book. It's all one thing. Um, the, the fact that they've split it in half the way that they have done is a long story that if you want to understand, go back and listen to the sermons from two years ago when I started this. But what we see at the beginning and ending of 1 Samuel is a battle in which the leaders of Israel fall. Eli died by falling off of his chair, and the word fall is used repeatedly in chapter 31. Saul fell, falls on his sword, the armor bearer falls on his sword, and verse 8 tells us that Saul and his sons have fallen. So the beginning and ending of 1 Samuel is about leaders who are falling, fallen leadership. Now, in the next chapter, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, David is going to sing a very beautiful song, and in, in, in that he says... Um, the mighty have fallen. He says it twice. He's, he's summarizing what has just happened. He summarizes at the beginning of 2 Samuel what happened in 1 Samuel, and that is the mighty have fallen. 1 Samuel is a fall. 
Second Samuel is the restoration after the fall. So it's a it's a the Bible in microcosm, if you will. Now, this is Saul's final fall. He's fallen several times. He's tripped here, there, and everywhere. But it looks a lot like Eli's. In the book of 1 Samuel, it begins and ends with the fall of a false and wicked leader. Yet each time, what happened? The faithfulness of God had prepared a second son, a faithful shepherd to carry on the kingdom work. When Eli died, who was there waiting in the wings to take over? Samuel. Now as Saul dies, who's waiting in the wings to take over? David. This is a story that repeats itself. In the, in the midst of this disaster, we find Saul keenly aware of the ancient Near Eastern custom regarding the treatment of enemy soldiers on the battlefield. When you found an enemy soldier on the battlefield, you did not take him to a Red Cross camp. Right? You didn't turn him over uh, to Guantanamo. Uh, you cut off his penis, and you cut off his head, and you cut off his thumbs, and this is what they do with people that they find who were, who were too cowardly to die on the battlefield. Now, if you, right, to make this point, just think back in 1 Samuel. What does David do to all of his enemies, the Philistines, for his bride price? He brings foreskins. He brings a pile of 200 foreskins to his father-in-law in order to, to pay for his bride. Because that's what you do when you fall into the hands of your enemies. What did David do to Goliath? He chopped his head off. Okay? Later in, in First and Second Kings, at the, or at the end of Second Kings, the thing that, the, um, that happens to the Israelite kings is they have all their thumbs chopped off, and they actually have to crawl around under the king uh, of Babylon's table begging for food. Okay? It's well known in the Old Testament what happens to you if, you are not power, if you're not strong enough and courageous enough to die on the battlefield. You're, you're treated like less than human. And so if you think about 1 Samuel, you understand exactly why Saul is terrified. The last thing he wants to do is fall in the hands of the uncircumcised. If you see what the circumcised people do who know God to enemies in battle, what do you think the uncircumcised might do to enemies who they find living on the battlefield? He is terrified, and he ought to be. Now, wishing uh, to deny the uncircumcised enemy an opportunity to abuse him and subject him to torture execution, Saul orders his armor bearer to deliver a swift and final blow. In this way, Saul is acting a lot like another tragic character from Judges. His name is Abimelech. In Judges chapter 9, verse 54, we read this. Judges chapter 9, verse 54. Then Abimelech called quickly to the young man his armor bearer and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of him, unless they say of me, a woman has killed me. And his young man thrust him through and he died. Because this is the glorious story where the daughter of Israel shoves a giant rock off of a tower and, and hits, crushes this guy's head. And what he does not want is to go down in the annals of his people having been killed by a woman. And so he wants his armor bearer to thrust him through. And whenever these kinds of things happen in scripture, okay, you find a phrase like this where he says, he turns to his armor bearer and says, stab me to death. You have got to go find other times in scripture where this has occurred. If you do, it tells you a little bit about the characters that you're reading about presently. This is how scripture works. What happens under tamarisks trees? That's where Saul is going to be buried. What else has happened under those trees? Has anybody else ever asked an armor bearer to stab him? Yes, turns out, and not a good guy. (laughs) So who is Saul related to in the minds of the authors of, of, of scripture? Not good characters. There is a huge movement now in in modern commentators and preachers about how we should all weep over Saul and feel bad for Saul. And Saul was actually was this poor little mouse playing this cat and mouse game with God that he was never going to win. 
But what you have to realize is who Saul is and how he ended up that way. Right? What dis, what, what dis, he's made decisions and a long line of decisions to get him here. And who the scripture compares him to is very important. Now, Abimelech was the original wicked king of Israel. If you recall, he had Israel anoint him. He had Israel anoint him. And if you go back in that story, there's a couple of interesting details. One, he, gets, he pays a bunch of money to a bunch of ruthless dudes who he then uses to go and put to death his 70 brothers. Right? So he pays um, money to, to people to turn on their brothers and kill his, his entire family. And one is saved, and that guy comes back and saves Israel from Abimelech. But do you know anybody else who's paid a large sum of money in order to stab his friend in the back? Does that sound familiar to anyone? Judas, right? So this is what happens in Scripture. They start to accumulate characters on top of one another so that you can learn to interpret what's going on in the story. Saul is associated with Abimelech, and Abimelech is associated with with the worst rogues in Scripture. So it's very hard to see exactly how he's not at fault. Saul has chosen this moment, right? What, who did, if you were going to spend your last night on earth eating, would you eat with a necromancer, right? Would it be like, hey, let's go to the witch, witch bride of Indoor. I'm sure it's right next to Wendy's, and let's go grab a sandwich. <laughs> right? Saul is not a good guy. And, and it, it's fascinating how they just really, really, really want to drive the point home here at the end. It's like, it's not bad enough, right? The poor guy dies, but anyway. So Saul's armor bearer is terrified. He's terrified that he's asked him to do this. He refuses to do it. Now, and, and why? Well, we've learned all along. Why doesn't David stab Saul every time David has the opportunity to? Because you don't put your hands on the Lord's anointed. You don't touch him, even if he asks you to. What's interesting is Saul has so little respect for the anointed of the Lord, right, he himself, that he doesn't mind having someone run him through. But you're not supposed to put your hands on the, on the anointed of the Lord. That's why David never kills him. That's why when David cuts off just a little, little piece of his robe, he, he repents of it because he raised his sword against the anointed of the Lord. This becomes an important detail. So the armor bearer, surrounded by the enemy, there is Saul pierced through with arrows. There he is, right? Uh, probably not going to make it anyway. And he still won't stab the guy. Even mercy won't bring him to do it. He will not lift his hand against the anointed of the Lord. Now, David would have liked this guy a great deal because who was the original armor-bearer of Saul? David. And what did David faithfully do the entire time Saul was hunting him in the woods? He refused to kill Saul. And now, right here at the end, you see a number of interesting things. The idea of putting your hands on the, on the anointed of the Lord is well known. You don't do it. It's, it's a common thing in Israel. It's not just David. The other thing is what kind of affection... Uh, how effective of a leader is Saul when he's commanding his troops to do things and they won't do it? It's, it's kind of how he ended up down on top of a mountain in the first place, right? He's giving orders to his troops and his troops are saying no. That's not a good leadership um, position to be in. He's barking orders, no one's listening. So what does he have to do? He does himself in. He stabs himself, right? He's been attempting to murder the anointed of the Lord for chapters now and he finally gets his wish. The irony is it's himself, right? He can't get his hands on David, but he can stab himself. And, and it's, it's a great wickedness that he does. It would have been better if he would have turned himself over to the Philistines, but he couldn't bear it. He couldn't bear it. What God says is sacro, sacrosanct, what God says is holy, what God says is set apart, we, we accept that or you deny it, 
right? Here's Saul, who's like, wait, wait, what are they going to do to me if they catch me? Okay, well, that's still better than raising your hand against what God has anointed and called holy. And, and later, later we're going to see this, right? What happens when they're moving the ark and the poor Shmo, who's moving it into the temple, reaches out his hand to prevent it from falling on the ground? As soon as he touches it, he drops dead. Why? Because it doesn't matter if it falls on the ground. What's worse is you touching it with your hand. And, and what you see here is that Saul does not understand how holiness works. Saul does not understand that no matter how it appears, no matter what you may have to suffer, obeying God is better than disobeying God. Now, he falls upon his sword because he doesn't want them to make sport of him. It's a, and, and, and in a tragic show of solidarity with his king, the armor bearer does likewise. As the king goes, so goes the people. Now, should we, on our battlefield, on battlefields, stab ourselves? Right? I mean, no matter how you cut it, what has he done? He's committed suicide. The king has committed suicide, and now what you see are, is his people committing suicide. And, and what this proves is that what, the direction that the king decides to go is the direction that the people are going to go. Right? And this is called the law of the lid in business. Because no matter what, the morality of the people is never going to be higher than the morality of the leader. Hello, fathers and mothers. Hello, if you own a business. The morality of your people is never going to get higher than the lid on top of them. So the higher the lid, the more morality you have in the people that are following you. It's pretty straightforward. Now, there's a number of other interesting things going on. One of them is that if you read ancient literature at all, like the Iliad, one of the, the, the primary things a military body is supposed to do is defend the fallen king. Like in the Iliad, it's crazy what they do. The king, once some king falls or some great hero falls, and the entire army is like, forget the battle, forget the objective. What we have to do now is rally around the king. Now, what kind of king is Saul where nobody comes to rally around him? Well, first off, nobody knows where he is. That's not good, where you don't know where the commander is. Or they don't care where he is. Either way, it's not good. Saul dies alone on a hill, and no one cares. It's very, very, very tragic. This is the end of Saul, and it's bad in every conceivable way. Now, either at this point the Israelites had all fled, or they just did not care. Now, Saul has become completely isolated from his army, and he dies completely alone. Samuel's haunting words from 2819, less than 24 hours old, is resoundingly echoed in verse 6. He was told by Samuel, the ghost, that you and all of your sons will die. And, and 24 hours later, it says that Saul and all of his sons are dead. Now, when the Philistines plundered the next morning, they found more than they had ever hoped for. Right? No, nobody had defended the dead. Nobody piled them up. Nobody took their swords. Nobody defended them. They just left them there for carrion birds. So when, when they come down to you know, give, give the dead a toss, see what they can come up with, what kind of coins and whatnot they can come up with, lo and behold, they find the king himself and his, and his sons. And this is a great treasure to them. Because what, what does it demonstrate? They have utterly crushed Israel. They've crushed them. Okay? And at that very moment, you contrast this, right? If you, if you line up the days properly in, in the last couple of chapters of 1 Samuel, David at this moment has plundered the Amalekites and is giving treasures away to the people who helped him. Saul is being plundered dead on a battlefield. Now, the Philistines do what? They cut his head off, another of many head wounds in 1 Samuel. Within 1 Samuel, Dagon and Goliath, they've all had their heads cut off because what happens to serpents? 
Right? You go back to Genesis 3.15, what happens to serpents? What happens to the sons of Satan? They get their heads crushed. It, it's, this is, again, what I'm talking about. When, it's, when there's a head wound, you have to stop and think, what does the head wound itself signify? The head wound signifies that Saul is a son of Satan, just like Goliath, just like Dagon, because the enemies of God always get their heads crushed. That's what happens to them. If you live like a snake, you die like a snake. If you live like a Philistine, you die like a Philistine. If you rule with a spear in your hand like Goliath, you die by the spear. Now, what it says is they send this good news. They call it, they call it good news. That, this is always what happens. Uh, the, the secularists, the unbelievers, they always steal our words. right? So they're literally calling this the gospel, the good news. They want to send their people back home and, and proclaim the gospel of, of the dead Israelite king to their unbelievers back at home. What they see it as is a spiritual victory. See, because the phrase good news didn't become in vogue in Jesus' day. It was already a phrase people used. You go and you proclaim the good news. And now they're going to proclaim the good news back home. It's, it's, it's not just a fight between two nations. It's a fight between two gods. The Philistines are not merely celebrating a military victory, as in the Battle of Aphek, just like that time. They are making a theological point. The gods of the Philistines, Philistines have triumphed over the God of Israel. Remember at Aphek when they took the ark and they took it back to the temple of Dagon and they put it there at the feet of Dagon as a, as a treasure? Saul had been the bearer of the Spirit of God, the anointed of the Lord, who had fought against the Philistines and other enemies of Israel. He was the bearer of the Lord's presence, just like the ark was, but the Lord had departed from him. With the fall of Saul and the capture of his armor, the glory has departed from Israel again. The idols appear to have won, and they have carried the day. The gory head belongs to Yahweh's anointed. Therefore, Yahweh has himself has been defeated. Saul's armor is in the adversary's temple. Yahweh could not protect his own king. Now, what kind of God is the God of Israel when he can't even protect his own king? What kind of God is the God of Israel when he can't even keep the king's head on? That's their point. And so when these victories occur, it's not just, right? It's not just nations. It's not just this materialistic, soulless world that we live in. There are, there's always a spiritual element to the warfare in which we are committed. In the pagan mind, if Yahweh's king and people are trounced, so is their God. <laughs> you see this. This is what happens in the Old Testament. Uh, and, and during the conquest, during Joshua's day, uh, they go out and they whip up on these unbelievers in the forest. And the, and the unbelievers are like, well, pfft. Clearly, their God is a God of a forest. So let's go fight them in the plains. Let's go fight them in the, uh, down, down in the grasses. And then they go down, they're like, man, their God is also a God of grasses. <laughs> like, well, let's fight them in a valley now, right? Our God's as strong as it is. And they go down the valley, and lo and behold, this God of, of Israel is apparently the God of everywhere. Okay, now what you see here is the opposite happening. Their God is a nobody. In, in one generation, they've shown it twice. They whooped them in Aphek and took, their, took the presence of their God, the ark, now they've whooped them again, and they've taken the presence of their God. Their God is a nobody. And this is partially why David has so much success, because it's not just Israel's face that's fallen. It's not just Israel, Israel's honor that's at stake. The honor of God is at stake. Remember what Moses said to him? He says, God, are you going to let your people come out here 
and die in the wilderness. And what is everyone going to say about you if you, if you let that happen? They're going to say you're a nobody. They're going to say you're a wimp. And so part of what goes on in the first stages of David's reign is the fact that he's not going to establish his name. He's going to reestablish the name of, it, of Israel's God. And that's why the fighting is so fierce, and that's why he destroys so many uh, nations and their gods. Now, here we get to a very interesting detail that I think is massively applicable to our own day. What does Israel do when they see their army defeated? What the people of God tend to do when they see that their leaders have fallen and their, and their army has been defeated? Well, it says, realizing, right, the blanket military protection has disappeared. It says the Israelite army had fled. The king and all his designated successors had been slaughtered. So they abandoned their towns and fled. Israel, seeing the defeat on the battlefield, seeing that their kings were dead, ran away. Now, does that seem, does that sound at all familiar to a state like Washington? Right? Where did they go? Texas? Tennessee? Where do they all go? So apparently there's nothing new under the sun, just like the Lord says. When it looks like we're getting whooped up in the state house, when it looks like the, the county commissioner comes out and defeats us yet again in the public square, what's the first thing we all want to do? Run away. Now, what I, I'm going to just, for a moment, be clear. It does not make a moral judgment about this. Okay? Now, And there's also lots of reasons people move away. I'm just going to say that. right? Generalizations can sometimes be dangerous. But what we see here is that what they, the Israelites look at the circumstances and see the, the, the losses adding up, and their, what their reaction is is to run away. And I would say that that's generally, right, and, and, and it spreads. Cowardness spreads. If the army is going to run away, what is the blacksmith going to do? If the army is going to run away, right, what is the grocery shop owner going to do? Well, he's going to run away too. And when you have nations whose armies flee in the face of the enemy, it's not a good sign. And, and what we have in the state of Washington is our church leaders and the army, in that sense, has fled. Right? That's why so many people have left Washington. Ministers with no backbone, ministers who should be wearing dresses, ministers who are not proclaiming the word of God, ministers who will do whatever and anything that the state tells them to do, they, they see them fall on Malkaboa, and the people of God flee in great number. And that is part of what's going on right now. It's not reasonable that a lot of people are leaving. And, it, you know, it's, the, the, the story at this point doesn't say much about it. It doesn't justify it. It doesn't necessarily curse them for it. It just says it happens. Because it does. It's something that happens all the time. We have to read... The point of reading Scripture is to take the typology of it, look around the world that you're in now... And, and read the story that's going on. And don't we look like Israel fleeing because its army has fled, because its leaders are gone? Now, 1 Samuel 9.16 says that Saul was chosen king because of the Philistine threat. That's why. And that's what the people wanted. They said, hey, we want a guy who's going to lead us in battle like the nations because we need someone who's going to fight for us. The whole start of, the, of kingship and the throne in Israel was Israel's response to the Philistine threat. They put their hope in men, and what did they get? They said, give us a man like the Philistines who will lead us in battle like the Philistines. And they end up getting whooped by the Philistines. Because when you reject God and put your, put your hope in men, this is always what happens to you. 
So if you are putting your hope in men, right, if you're like, oh, my gosh, if we could just get one more Supreme Court justice, if we could just get some Republicans around here who actually know what they're talking about, if we could just get a guy that will lead us in battle, right, man, come on, where, where are the men who are going to lead us? And, and this is a trap for us. It's always a trap for conservative Bible-believing Christians. We want to fight like them, right? Where, what are we always complaining about? There's no more university professors. And is that why the church is in the horrible state that it's in? Because we don't have anybody teaching at Yale? <laughs> I digress. <laughs> the situation is one that is very common to the people of God. And Israel has got it, right? It's gut check time. What is the problem? The problem is that you put your hope in men. The problem is that you're looking at your circumstances. The problem is that men do not flee their towns and, and, and their property that the Lord gave them when it, things aren't looking good. There is a ton of application for us here. Now, the Philistines have found Saul's body, and what do they do to it? Well, they fulfill the word of God from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28 Verse 26 says, And your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one uh, to frighten them away. So back in Deuteronomy 28, Moses says, Listen, if you go into the land and you abandon God, like they did at the beginning of 1 Samuel because they want a king, what's going to happen is your bodies are going to lay out under the sun and birds are going to eat them and there will be no one to scatter the birds. And what we see is exactly that is what has happened when they reject the Lord. And, And now I want you to just... Put, that little, put a little marker there, a mental marker, because we're going to come back to that, because this is actually what this whole story is about, the fulfillment of the word of God. If you run away from God, what happens? You have no protection. If you flee from him, there's no safety. If you flee to him, there's nothing but safety. Now, most of the Israelites have run away. But what did the people of Jabesh-Gilead do? It says in verse 12. We go back to 31, verse 12. And what does it say that the men of Jabesh-Gilead do? The valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth-Shan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. The valiant men. Did the valiant men run away? Do the valiant men leave their homes? Do the valiant men leave the land? Do the valiant men say, oh, look, he's gone, and now there's no hope for us? Or do the valiant men see what the unbelievers do to their Savior? Because that's who he is. This is why they respond this way. The men of Jabesh-Gilead remember Saul and what he had done for them. In the face of utter defeat, the valiant men are the ones with memories. The valiant remember their people and their God. The valiant remember their Savior, no matter how dangerous and hopeless the circumstances look. They know what the right thing to do is, and that is to not leave their Savior rotting out nailed to a wall. They had to... (laughs) The track that they go on through the night is like 12 miles. So the Philistine army has totally destroyed their army. They have to now go into enemy territory, 12 miles, I might add, and cross a river to do so. In order by night to, how do you sneak up to a wall, by the way, and take down dead bodies? Like, that seems like an easy operation. And they then bring those bodies back. And if you go back to chapter 11, right, what, what was going on back in chapter 11? Nahash the Ammonite, a skilled mutilator, 
according to chapter 11, verse 2, was coming to Jabesh Gilead to kill everybody. And they needed a savior. And who rode all night to save them? Saul had. So the men of Jabesh Gilead remember their savior. They remember what Saul had done. The spirit may have departed from Saul, and Yahweh may not be answering the phone, but there was a time when Saul was their savior, and they remained devoted to him. And that's what gives them courage. This is what makes them valiant. In, in the face of defeat, they will not flee. In, in the face of uh, unsurmountable odds, it seems, they're going to go through the night and cross the river into enemy territory and bring back dead bodies off of a wall. Uh, right? If you ever wonder what valiant means, there you go. Now, this is, now again, remember we talked about how you got to think is there anybody else who came at night to help a dead leader? In the faith, right? When, when there should be reason to be scared? Well, if we turn, turn with me to Mark chapter 16. The scriptures are teaching us how to read the scriptures. You think, has anybody else done this before? I think they have. Mark 13, verses 1 through 3. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Mark 16, verses 1 through 3. I've got one more page here. And Mark is long. Okay. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. What did the followers of Christ, the ladies, I might add, do when there's enemy soldiers around? Right? They're going down there to anoint the, their fallen Lord. They've remembered their Savior, just like the men of Jabesh Gilead had remembered their Savior. And they're going in the wee hours of the night on an operation to, to, to protect his body, to honor his body in the face of the enemy. Are they overwhelmed by circumstances? None of them thought, hey, you know what? We're not going down there because the rock's too big to move. Right? But the people who had fled, what did they say? They saw the army and they're like, there's no way we can defeat this army. There's no way we can help all those dead bodies lying out under the sun. We're not going to go and scare them with the birds eating their eyeballs. We're going to run away. But you have men of Abish Gilead and you have the followers of Christ, the ladies, all doing the valiant thing. Now, it's very odd that the Israelites burn the body of Saul. Now, why do they do that? That's not what you're supposed to do with the body in Israel. Well, the reason is because after being chopped up and nailed to a wall for a few days, it seems to me that the body would not be exactly what we would call fresh. Okay? And they are Israelites, so they can't go around touching a disgusting, decaying body. They've got to burn the thing in order to purify the bones before they can even touch the bones in order to bury them. So that's why they do this. It's very strange that they burn them, but that's why. They're cleaning it. Now, the bones are then buried under a tamarisk tree. Now, the last time we saw Saul under a tamarisk tree, he was holding a spear in his hand and complaining that everyone was conspiring against him. And the only one that was conspiring against him was him. And, and what did he end up doing with that spear in his hand? Stabbing himself with it, right? He, the last time we saw him under a tree like this, he's got a spear, and he's talking about how he's going to kill David because he's a conspirator. And ultimately, Saul did actually kill the conspirator against himself. It was himself, right? Your number one enemy in your Christian life is you. Right, have you seen that? <laughs> There's that meme from the old Scooby-Doo days. It's like, you know, remember in Scooby-Doo where they used to take the mask off and see who's really the enemy? 
And there's this funny meme where it's one of the Scooby-Doo characters, and he takes the mask off, it's himself. And, and it says, you know, it's time to find out who's ruining my walk with Jesus. And, and what you find with this is who all, all along was Saul's biggest enemy, Saul. Right? And he, he's now buried under the very tree that he used to talk about conspirators when he was a conspirator, where he used to hold a spear that he ends up using on himself. Now, he was there, paranoid, self-destructive. This, is, this defines his whole rule. His grave is marked by a simple desert growth, a tamarisk tree, rather than a palace, rather than a capital city or a kingdom. He's not put somewhere that's memorable. He's buried under a tree. Now, the tamarisk is an interesting tree. It grows in sandy soil. It is deciduous and reaches over 20 feet in height with small leaves that actually excrete salt. Excrete salt, believe it or not. Its bark is used for tanning, its wood for building and making charcoal. It is commonly planted for its shade and the branches which provide uh, for grazing animals. Now, in Mesopotamia, incantations, in Mesopotamian incantations that they've discovered, the tamarisk is a holy tree with purifying qualities. Images were made from its wood, and it was at times connected with cosmic stability. And I believe that they buried him here for that reason. If we bury him here under this tree, maybe we can heal the land. If we bury him here under this tree, maybe God will hear us. Maybe it will bring cosmic stability because for two generations they've had nothing but instability. Regardless of the danger, the distance, the difficulty, the valiant have, have, are honoring their savior. They remain and remember him with rites and rituals of remorse. They now fast for seven days, which is longer than you're supposed to fast. But they're fasting for seven days, which is the amount of time they, they had left before Saul came and rescued them. So they're remembering him. They're, they're honoring the one who had delivered them. They have not fled. They remember their responsibility. They remember the one who saved them. And they remember what is due to his name. And they honor him by burying him under this beautiful tree. In the shadow of, of death, there is a tree of life. For now, David, who, is led, who was led through the desert in exile, will rise and redeem Israel. In times of defeat, Israel needs valiant men and valiant women. It needs people who are not going to run away, but who are going to remember their Savior, who are, even though they don't understand how they're going to roll the wall, wall sorry, stone back, want to go down to the grave and honor his body. That's the kind of women we need in Israel. We need the kind of men who are going to ride overnight, through the night, into enemy territory, and bring back our dead, who are not going to leave them to the birds. What we do not need are Israelites who are like, man, it looks terrible, let's run away. Now, in conclusion, if you guys who have been here before, why is it that they have written this history? Because okay, Samuel didn't, uh, he wrote portions of it. This is, this is, again, you go back to the earlier sermons. The latter prophets took a bunch of historical works, and they edited them and compiled them into this long piece of work called the Deuteronomistic History. And the purpose of it is to, to show Israel, who is in exile at the time that they compiled it, that God fulfilled all of his promises from Deuteronomy for two reasons. One, he said, if you abandon me, I will abandon you. So it explains why they're in exile. In Deuteronomy, he says, you will go into exile if you leave me. Boom, they're in exile. So they're like, well, the word of God is true. <laughs> and what they do with things like this is they demonstrate that his word of cursing, his word of damnation, his word of judgment is fulfilled. Why? 
so that his, his word of promise they will, they will likewise see will be fulfilled. Because in Deuteronomy, Moses says, if you return to me, and Moses says of God, if you return to God, he will return to you. And they now look at the history and they're like, well, he wasn't lying when he said he was going to curse them. So now he must not be lying when he says he's going to bless them. But at, at the heart and center of it, what does it require of us to, to flee or to be valiant? God does not lie. So then if God has said something, he's, he's promised to restore Israel if she returns to the Lord, will he in fact return to Israel? This is, what he, he, this is the question he's leaving them with. If God is not a liar, and you can see that he's not a liar in the history, is he, is he lying about the fact that he will restore you? Now, just as the word of God had announced the end of Hophni and Phinehas at the beginning in 1 Samuel 2.34, it was also fulfilled in 1 Samuel 4.11. So the word of Yahweh spoken by the prophet Samuel is fulfilled upon Eli and his sons and Saul and his sons. Now, this is hardly a happy fulfillment of Yahweh's word, and yet it is not without its comfort. Israel may fall on Geboa, Saul may fall on his sword, but does the word of God fall? Is the word of God powerless? Or does the word of God go out and accomplish exactly what it sets out to do? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. Turn in that chapter to, um, to verses 10 and 11. And this is what it says. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes. Um, sorry. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That is what the book of First Samuel is about. The word. God is not playing around, and his word is not empty. And though the kings may fall, though the prophets may fall, he will not. It is a dark time for the kingdom of God in our present day. But God's word shows that even in this darkness, it's not outside of God's purpose. If you think about Job for a moment, and I just realized this earlier this week, think, go, go on a little thought experiment with me. Job. Okay, Satan is given permission to, to go after Job. And what does he do? He kills his, what, children? Hmm. Does he kill his flocks? Now, why doesn't he kill his wife? Have you ever thought about this? Now, the reason he doesn't kill his wife is because his wife is a weapon. His wife is part of the curse. He leaves the wife as part of the curse. And here's why. Job chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. You're like, well, I'm not getting rid of her, right? She seems very useful. Because what is she doing? She's doing the thing. She's not like the ladies who went to find Jesus. She's like the, the, the Israelites who saw the, the, the fall of the army and want to run away. Job, just get it over with already. Fall on your sword, for goodness sakes. 
Get it over with. And that's the kind of woman she is, and that's why he doesn't remove her, because he needs her in order to curse Job. And so what we need are, are men and women who understand what a word of comfort is. What, what does it mean to comfort your husband in these trying times? Just get out of the state already. <laughs> Fall on your sword already. Just get the gun and put yourself out of your misery. Right? We don't need this dripping, nagging, hopeless nonsense. What we need are men and women who, irregardless of the circumstances, are valiant in the face of it who are comforting one another to fulfill the mission that God has given us. And that is proclaiming a word that does not return to him empty. In James chapter 5, it says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Take Job as your example. And when people are telling you to run away, when people are telling you to fall on your sword, you say no. And you, pro, you proclaim the word of God. All through the book of Job, what is he saying? No, the, word, the Lord said this, and the Lord said this, and the Lord said this. And he's constantly defending his faithfulness to God, using the faithfulness of God to him. In darkness or light, what matters is having a God who speaks a true and faithful word upon which we build our lives. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Build on this rock, and the world will shake. But if you build on the rock of his word, what happens? Your house doesn't fall down. You don't run away. Your wife doesn't say, just stab yourself already. Saul was responsible for his own deliberate, stubborn refusal to admit when he had done wrong and humble himself in repentance, and re he refused to return to the Lord. This stubbornness in Saul brought about a, a, a rift with Samuel, leaving him without the spiritual support that he needed, increasing his isolation, depression, and mania, until he's on a mountain stabbing himself. Now, Saul does call forth our sympathy because of his frailty. It's so like ours. If, right? And this is the thing. We can't respond to all the nonsense they say about Saul in the modern times by, by, saying, by just holding him in ridicule. Right? Because this, this is the, that trap we always get into. Right? If I'd been in the garden, I would have never eaten the apple. Right? Right? I mean, I wouldn't have done it. I, I'm way smarter than that. I'm way holier than that. If I'd been on Malgaboa, I wouldn't, right? I would have just stood up and been like, bring it, Philistines. <laughs> just like I do to Inslee. Come on now. We cannot ridicule this man because it, apart from the grace of God remaining upon us, we are all on our way to becoming Saul and his followers. And if you don't believe me, look around the church. Israel needs more than a shot of self-esteem. The picture is hardly sunny. Their leadership is annihilated. Their territory is evacuated. Some fleeing. It is a sad sight. Strike the shepherd, and what happens to the sheep? They scatter in every conceivable direction. 1 Samuel is simply a sad book of one disappointment after another. The judgment on ungodly leadership, the rejection of prophetic leadership, the dis disintegration of royal leadership, 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 leadership. It's all in the tank. So what do the people of God need? Leadership, leadership, leadership. They need leadership in the home. They need leadership in education. They need leadership in culture, leadership in business, leadership in politics. We need to stop running away, and we need to grab hold of the word that doesn't fail, and we need to go to work. That's what we need. And so my question is, where are the valiant? Where are the valiant? 
Are you valiant? Right? Or do you see, you, you think of how big that stone is in front of Jesus' grave, and you think, there's no way I'm going to roll that away. Right? What has the Lord been doing this whole time? Right? Is now, now that Saul's dead, is there no hope for them? And this is, this is the thing we always have to remind ourselves. The king is dead. Long live the king. Because who's the real king? Who's the king in heaven whose purpose is being fulfilled? Where, where has David been? He's been in the wilderness being prepared for this moment. And he's ready. Right? And these valiant ones who go and save him, how are they, they were prepared through this. Do you think, think back to Jabesh Gilead. Did that maybe seem like the worst thing that had ever happened to those people? And it was the formative thing that made them people that we remember as the valiant ones. And so you think in your own life of the worst conceivable stuff that has happened to you. How do you not know that that wasn't what was preparing you for right now? Numbers 27, 15 to 17. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd that was always his plan is that our plan are we preparing the next generation are we preparing young men are we preparing young ladies to be husband lovers right and home lovers and children lovers are we preparing young women to do that are we preparing men to lead in the face of unbelievable opposition are we preparing men in the church to take up right, the cowl and carry on the fight? That is what the Lord is doing. We have to look to him and his ways, his word that does not fall, and, and, and we need to work and build with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And, and, and this, is, this is what we learn. There is a great deal of judgment here. But what have we learned about God? That there is always judgment tempered with what? Mercy. There is always judgment given with hope. It's never just the negative word. It's the negative word and the positive word. He sets before you today what? Life and death. Blessing and cursing. He sets before us today cursing. This is what will happen to you if you reject him. But also blessing. There are men who are going through difficult times who are being prepared to be the valiant. His judgment is always tempered with hope. There was always judgment and there was always mercy. There is always a shepherd being prepared. Valiant men remain who know how to honor the anointed of the Lord. We look at this and we say, man, this is awful. Saul is dead, but who's in heaven? Right? The king is dead, but long live the king. And that's the hope. Go home and tell your wife that. Go home and tell your children that. Go home and build with a sword in one hand and a trial in the other because the king is in heaven and he does as he pleases. And it doesn't matter how much they whoop us in the streets. It doesn't matter how much they whoop us in politics or business or fill in the blank. We serve the king who is victorious. Do not run away. Plant your, his flag where you're at and, and, and rally around it. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your, your kindness and goodness to us. We know, Lord, that you have uh, set before us today life and death, blessing and cursing. And I pray for each heart and mind here that we would, in fact, choose life and choose blessing today and this week. We, I pray, Lord God, that you would strengthen us, that you would teach, our, teach us to be the valiant, that you would teach us to remember the anointed of the Lord, that you would give us courage and strength in these trying times. And amen.